Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. So today's our second last message in this series. And last week we were looking at the power of the gospel and the message of repentance in Jonah 3. And so if you're here and you've ever shared the gospel with somebody. If, you're, if you don't know what that word means, it's, it's, it's the message of God's offer of salvation, of redemption. And so that's the message that was received by this city, this ancient city of Nineveh. And if you've ever shared the gospel with someone in our day, you'll probably notice that the response that Jonah had in Nineveh is not exactly the norm. There's street preachers on my corner in Allentown every day, and I haven't seen quite the response that Jonah saw in Nineveh yet. (laughs) Now, in our context, so we live in kind of the post-Christian Western world. In our context, when you're sharing this, this message called the gospel, evangelizing, you're more often met with objections or with challenges. And so that's where the job of what's called apologetics comes in. That's the art of winning people over to Jesus by commending and defending the faith. So a couple months ago in May, the Barna Group, which is a research group that does large surveys across the nation, they released a study on how the American population feels about Christianity. They asked them, is there anything that made them doubt Christian beliefs? Tick all that apply. And the leading objection, the number one objection that people had was the thing that we've already seen in the book of Jonah, which is religious hypocrisy. In other words, the number one people, the, the number one reason that people doubt the truth of Christianity is because they have a problem with the character of Christians. But the second reason was human suffering, which really is a problem with the character of God. And that's exactly the problem that we go on to find in Jonah 4, but we find it in a little bit of an unexpected way. All right, so I want to talk about mission this morning, and I want to look at this challenge. How do we respond to this challenge in sharing the gospel? And I just have to preface this by saying this is only ever going to be a scratching of the surface But I want to look at some of the things that this passage brings out and how to answer, how to overcome some of the challenges that we have with the character of God or our perception of the character of God. And my hope is that for some of you, this might address some of the doubts that you've been having. And for others, it will help you help others with their doubts. All right, so we're going to read from Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. And following on into chapter 4. Remember, Jonah has just gone to Nineveh, finally. He's preached his five-word sermon, and the whole wicked city, this great capital of a global empire, has miraculously repented. From the king to the animals and everyone in between. And this is what happens next. So verse... 10 of chapter 3. It says, 
When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That word relented could also be translated repented. He turned around. He saw when they turned, God turned. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It's a really likable guy, this Jonah, right? (laughs) And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? I remember a time years ago in school as a teenager in the UK, there was a girl I fancied, and my wife's going to roll her eyes because she said I fancied a lot of girls. (laughs) So she wasn't a Christian, and so I invited her to a Delirious concert. All right, Delirious was a Christian rock band in the early 2000s, for those of you who don't know. And so she came, we drove down to London with a few friends, and we enjoyed the concert. And, you know, like, yes, missionary dating, right? And it led to a few kind of faith conversations. And I remember the first one, it was on the way home from the concert. She said, Ian, I used to have a faith in God. But my dad got cancer. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I cried, and God didn't heal him. He died. How could God really be there if he lets a little girl go through that? And then I remember months later, another conversation. Where she said, how can God be loving when he's so judgy. He's so judgmental. It seems so wrong. Why can't God just be forgiving and loving? And so you can probably guess that was the end of my missionary dating career. Almost. (laughs) She had some good objections. Things that I wasn't prepared at that age to be able to respond to. But all her objections to faith were about, what? The character of God. And her underlying assumption was if if this is what God is like, then he either doesn't exist or he's not worth following. He's not worth obeying. And there's a lot of people in that place. It's exactly what the Barna study shows us. When our culture sees suffering or it hears about a God of judgment, it tends to look at it and says, that is very wrong. And we can't imagine that there would be a God like that. And so the typical response is to get angry and reject him. 
And that's what's traditionally called the problem of evil. But the interesting thing we see in this passage is that Jonah sees the opposite. Jonah sees forgiveness. He sees God being merciful. He sees a lack of judgment. And yet he looks at it and says, that is very wrong. So you see, our culture has a problem with God's judgment. Jonah had a problem with God's mercy. Our culture rejects God because it finds him too judgy. Jonah rejects God because he's not judgy enough. But either way, what happens is, one of the biggest objections to faith is the perception of the character of God. And so the first thing I want to point out here is that when you see how equal and opposite these rejections are, what it points to is the fact that, this is the first point, our objections to faith are culturally conditioned. They're conditioned by our experience. And so we have this kind of assumption that everyone in all places struggles with the same things, has the same uh, questions, but the reality is every culture, every time in history, every generation really, has its own questions, its own obstacles that stand in the way of faith. And so in our culture, many people have a problem with the idea of a God who would judge, who would punish. Now, it might be surprising, this was surprising to me to find this out a few years ago in studying this, that that's actually a very recent obstacle to faith. This looking at suffering and saying there must not be a God is only an objection that's really gained force in the last couple hundred years since the the, the Enlightenment in, in Europe. And so, what we actually see historically is the richer, the more safe and comfortable a society gets, the more that suffering and judgment become problems. They become seen as obstacles to believing in God. And what's really interesting is that poorer societies, less safe, less comfortable societies, both now and throughout history, typically don't have the same problem as we do with suffering or judgment. They seem to assume that suffering is just part of life and that, of course, evil should be judged. And so what's hard for us to understand is that those cultures often have a harder time swallowing God's mercy than they do the idea of God's judgment. And so it's just to point out that actually, if you're, if you're to try and take a thought experiment and imagine that you were living in a different time and place, in a different economic stratus, in a different culture, your questions and the things that you find objectionable to believing in God might be completely different. And so we either seem to have a problem with God allowing too much of what we think is unmerited evil, or we have a problem with God allowing too much unmerited good. And the next point is this, that how we respond to judgment or mercy reveals our standing before that judgment and mercy. All right, so I want to do a little thought experiment with me. When I say the word mercy, mercy, does that sound like good news or bad news to you? 
Good? I'm hearing a lot of goods. Mukunji, I'm assuming good. All right. When I say the word judgment, does that sound like good news to you or bad news to you? Bad? I heard one good. That's cheating. Uh, (laughs) I would say in our culture, mercy overwhelmingly has a good connotation. Judgment overwhelmingly has a bad connotation. But the thing is, how you hear these words actually says a lot. It's revealing. Because when you think about it, judgment is only bad news to the guilty. The innocent have nothing to fear. And on the other hand, judgment is actually good news if you're the victim. Right? It's vindication. And so, if we react with anger, like Jonah... Might it be because we know we stand condemned? And if you react with joy, it's because you feel you stand vindicated. It, it'll, it'll help you now when you reread some of the Psalms that celebrate God's judgment, which are so perplexing to us in, in our time and culture, you begin to understand they're speaking from the perspective of the oppressed. They're speaking from the, the perspective of victimhood. And so God's judgment is a message of good news when you're speaking from that perspective. Now, think of the opposite thing. So mercy is only good news if you're the perpetrator. Mercy is bad news if you're a victim hoping for justice, right? So where this takes me is what happens when we have a society obsessed on every side with judging political and ideological enemies where everyone boasts of being victimized in some way and is demanding their own form of justice and there's all different competing ideas of justice. So you have that on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's a society where virtually nobody seems humble enough to admit their own guilt and ask for mercy. I think you end up with a lot of judgment and very little justice. You end up with a lot of anger and very little mercy. And so we're very quick to point out the problem of evil and we get angry and we experience, whenever we experience suffering or or at the thought that God would dare to judge us. But we're slow to examine the other half of the problem which is why do we think that we should experience mercy or forgiveness? So the next point here is that rejecting God by the problem of evil, it only leaves you with what I call the problem of good. How can we demand mercy on the one hand and justice on the other without becoming the very kinds of hypocrites that we criticize? Because when we're honest with ourselves... If you were to take a list, you know, a piece of paper, Tim Mackey suggested this exercise, you might want to do this. Think of your enemy. Think of this person that just really annoys you, rubs you the wrong way, you can't stand them. Get a sheet of paper, write down all the things that you just can't stand about them. Really get it out, write the full list, use two pages if you need to. All right? Then stop and pray and honestly go back through that list and ask yourself, 
Have I ever done any of these things that I'm so angry at this person for? And I think when we're honest with ourselves, when we look in the mirror, we know that we fall short, not just of God's standards, we fall short of our own standards. If God only judged us at the end of our life by the things, not that he said in his law, but if God just recorded, you know, had a, had a, you know, a recording microphone around your neck and it only picked up all the times through your life where you said, that was wrong, how dare you, you hurt me. That's the only thing it records and you get to stand before God and he says, you know what, I'm going to be fair. I'm not going to judge you by my standards. I'm just going to judge you by your own standards. I don't know about you. (laughs) I would not do very well under that examination. And so one of the ways of responding to this objection is to think about that intuition that we have, that, that experience that we have of reality, that we can't seem to get away from the reality that there really is right and wrong. There really is good and bad. And so C.S. Lewis said, if we, if we look at evil and want to turn away from God, he asks, what can we turn towards? What do we turn to? Because if we look at evil and we turn away from God, we're actually left with a bigger problem, which is this. Without God, it's impossible. There's no way for us to know whether anything is actually good or bad. We have no standard by which to call anything right or wrong. All that we're left with is what our culture teaches, but the problem is, of course, cultures differ. And this is why the majority world often is so annoyed by the Western world pushing its morality on it, It used to be Christian morality, now it's progressive morality. And people get annoyed because they say, this is your cultural thing and you don't see it. We don't see it the same way as you do. So, without God, we don't have any way of arbitrating between those things. We have no way of looking at what anyone else does and saying, that's wrong. And so not only are we left with anger, we actually end up in despair. That's exactly where Jonah ends up, right? He's angry, and he's so angry, he just wants to die. We're left with nowhere to root our meaning, our sense of justice, our sense of goodness. And so just like Jonah, many people end up asking, what's the point of even living? What's the point of carrying on in this absurd, meaningless world? Here's the thing, just like just like we said, we can't actually escape our intuition, that experience that tells us there are some things that are really right and really wrong. There really is something good and something bad. And the best example, uh, one of my old tutors used this example. Has anyone watched the James Bond movies? All right, a few of us. Every Bond movie has a villain and like a really villainous villain. And it's never quite explained why exactly they want to destroy everything, but, but you know, they want to kill and destroy everything, and they're, they're just a terrible villain, and, you know, eventually Bond catches up to them, and it comes to this final moment, and it's the showdown between him and the villain, and so at the end of that movie, you're on the edge of your seat, and, and when you're honest, what do you want to see happen? You don't want James Bond to, like, 
put him in handcuffs, read him his rights, put him in jail, right? No, you, you want James Bond to kill the villain, amen. right? <laughs> I got an amen over here, Mukunji. <laughs> and when we're really honest, we don't just want him to kill them. We want the villain to suffer, right? Isn't it weird how we get, there's like a, there's a satisfaction in that ending to the story. That's our intuition of justice. And we can't escape from it. But here's the thing, and this is Jonah's struggle. What do we do with a God who forgives villains? That's the thing that Jonah hated. He's not running away from God's judgment. He's running away from God's mercy. And Jonah says, I knew you'd forgive them, you dirty forgiver. (laughs) That's what I was trying to avoid this whole time. I knew you couldn't help it. This is just who you are. And to prove his case... He actually quotes God's words back at him. And you may have recognized some of the the phrasing that he uses because Jonah is quoting Exodus 34, which, by the way, it's, it's the most quoted piece of scripture within scripture. And here's the full quote, Exodus 34. God declares his name. He declares his character before Moses. And here's the full quote. It says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So here's our next point. Both mercy and and judgment are equal parts of God's good character. Both have to be held together for God to actually be good. And even more, for God to actually be love. But I'm not going to get too much into that. When you look at all the different ways of trying to make sense of why we experience this, this reality of right and wrong, good and bad in the world, this is the only way that holds the two together that says you are right to cry for mercy and you are right to cry for justice because both of them are part of the fabric of reality. They are part of the very character of God. And so you are right. And so for any of us who have felt that, if we felt the anger of injustice, if we felt the the desperate plea for mercy, we can affirm those things. They are good. They are true. But there's also this dilemma inside of this. Because, like I already said, God has to be loving, merciful, but also just in order to be good. The problem is, justice and mercy are the kinds of things that can only be given at the expense of one another. Right? So, what is the definition of mercy? Mercy is when you are spared the penalty of what you've done wrong. Justice is when you are given the penalty for what you're done wrong. So you can only get one by the expense of the other, by getting rid of the other. 
So it leaves us in this dilemma. How can both of these things be true? How can we hold them together? And that is a problem in every philosophy, every world religion, except one. (laughs) In Luke 15, Jesus tells a story. It's a parable about a father with two sons. And he says the younger son demands his inheritance early. He effectively says, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. Give me the money that you owe me. He dishonors his father, and he goes off to a far country and wastes it all. Suddenly, when he's at rock bottom, he realizes there's, there's nowhere else to go. He thinks, maybe I'll go back to my father's house. It's totally selfishly motivated, and he cooks up this speech, Father, if you'll just let me serve you like one of your hired hands, let me come back into your house. And so he's begging for mercy. What you see is, it says, while he's still a long way off, the father sees him, runs towards him, accepts him and hugs him before the son even has a chance to say anything. And what he does is completely restores him. He puts the robe over him, the the ring of authority over him, and he throws a party for the whole village. In other words, the father showers him with mercy. But there's an older brother, and the older brother, he sees all this, and he gets angry. And he comes up to the father, and he says, I've been here all my life. I've obeyed you all the time. I've never done anything wrong, and never once have you thrown a party for me? You've never given me what I deserve. And so he's angry that his rebellious brother has been forgiven and been restored. Why? Because he doesn't deserve it. And so the the younger brother begs for mercy. The older brother begs for judgment. And the father says to him, son, I love you just as much as your younger brother. Everything I have is yours. Are you right to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Was it not right to celebrate this brother who was lost and is now found? And the story ends on that question. And it leaves that question just ringing in our ears. Now, you probably notice as I've told that, just how much this parallels with the story of Jonah. In the first half, Jonah runs off to a far country, running away from the presence of Father God. And at the point of losing it all, he's swallowed up by a sea monster and he all of a sudden throws up this kind of foxhole prayer. God, if you'll just save me, if you'll let me back in, I'll do whatever you want. And the father mercifully rescues him and accepts him back. But then in the second half, you see Jonah, he obeys God. He, he does his duty. He completes his work. But then he's angry at God for being too merciful towards people he feels doesn't, don't deserve it. And it ends on the same question. Should I not have mercy on this city, on this people that is misguided and lost, but have now found their way back. 
And so you see Jonah foreshadows, he, 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 looks, he points forward to both the younger son and the older son, the younger brother and the older brother. We've got two brothers both rejecting the love and acceptance of the father just in two different ways. One by being very, very bad. One by being very, very good. One by being very unrighteous. The other by being very self-righteous. And yet, what's in view here? The character of the father. This father, Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. God is like this father. And his heart goes out to both. And so the ultimate answer to the problem of our perception of God's character is to look at who Jesus says God is. And I would even encourage you, if you have, a, if you, have, if you wrestle with, with accepting this, the, a picture of God that is either too loving for you or too judgmental for you, look at Jesus because Jesus is the complete revelation of who God is, his character. And if you're putting words in God's mouth that you could never imagine Jesus saying, it shows you your perception is off. Look at Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am like this father in this story. And my heart goes out to both the the rebellious and the self-righteous. Examine your assumptions about the character of God. When is the last time that you doubted your doubts? God's not angry at our anger. He wants to save us from our despair. And so, where this all points to, I know that some people will say, I have family members who've told me before, yeah, but I didn't ask to be here. I didn't ask to be born. Shouldn't God take responsibility? And Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm doing. Jesus on the cross, his death on the cross, is God taking responsibility for sin, taking the full weight of judgment on our behalf. And so our last point here is that mercy and judgment hold together in the person of Jesus. And so we're left with the same choice as these two brothers. Will we accept the Father's mercy in Christ? Or will we we insist on the Father's justice that we carry? Because either way, justice is going to be satisfied either by him or by you. But now you have a chance to accept his gift of mercy, to accept his gift of love, so that you can be saved from the judgment that we know we stand condemned under. And so, I want to invite the the team back up, and I want to ask you this, just a few questions here to close in reflection. Are you angry at God today? Are you angry at God? Are you angry at enemies? And some of us listening are angry at God for how our lives have turned out, how our lives have gone. And I think God's question to Jonah rings out to us. Do you do well to be angry? And if you think you do, where will you turn in your anger if you turn away from God? 
how will you make sense of your experience of right and wrong that goes beyond simply what your culture teaches you? And even more importantly, what are you going to do with the evil that you know is also inside your heart? Are you angry with God today? And I have another question. Are you despairing today? Are you despairing like Jonah too, wondering what's the point of life? What's the point of carrying on when you haven't received what you thought you deserved? Again, is it right for you to be angry? Do you well? Do you do well to be angry? What if, doubt your doubt, what if God is using this despair to reveal to you what your true God has been all along? What if he's using this moment in your life to show you what your real source of life and meaning and purpose has been all along? And if that's you, you have an opportunity right now to let it go and receive his mercy. So whether, whether you're the younger brother today, and you guys can start playing, whether you're the younger brother today who's running away from a God that you think is too strict, too judgy, or whether you're the older brother who's bitter about your lack of reward, or you're disappointed that God seems to favor other people more than you, that same father is standing with open arms to welcome you home. He's standing with open arms to welcome you home. Receive his mercy today, because the thing is, none of us will be able to stand under the weight of his judgment. Jesus was crushed under that judgment so that you and I didn't need to be. Turn to him today. Accept his mercy today. Let's close in prayer together. Lord Jesus, we read the story of Jonah and we humbly recognize all the ways that we see ourselves in him his rebellion, his anger at God, his hatred towards enemies and people that he feels don't deserve mercy. And Lord, we also recognize that the only reason any of us are here today, the only reason that anyone knows you and finds salvation from destruction is because of your mercy. And so Lord, I pray for anyone here, anyone listening who has never taken that offer of your mercy and your forgiveness. God, open their eyes. Clear away the obstacles that stand between their heart and your heart. And if that's you, you have an opportunity right now. There's an open door to walk through and accept his mercy accepted by your Father once again. Don't wait. Don't delay. So Father, we thank you for this good news of forgiveness. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we're grateful for your love and your sacrifice to us. Lord, as we receive your forgiveness, as we walk humbly, knowing that we're 
only here by grace and mercy, Lord, would it transform us into the kind of people that would extend your heart even towards our enemies. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.